Well, good morning, everybody. This Christmas season, we've been saying that really Christmas is all about, Christmas is the story, and really this is the story of the whole Bible, but especially it really kind of comes to a, it comes to its climax at, at Christmas. Really the whole Bible, if you get right down to it, is a story of God making a way to live together with his people. And what we've been saying is that, you know, sometimes I think in the church, especially those of us that have grown up in the church, it's easy for us to have a narrow view of what happens when we trust in Jesus. And what we've been saying is that when you trust in Jesus, God doesn't just save you, he what? He adopts you. God doesn't just save you, he adopts you. What was it that you said, Laird? He dwells, yep, he dwells, he adopts us. But the, the point is that like any good father, God wants to live together with his children. Like any good father, God wants to live together with his children. I was thinking about this um, this past week. So Friday is my, is my Sabbath day. It's the day I take off from work. It used to be Wednesday, now it's Friday. And so it's my Sabbath day. It's the day where we really just try as a family to rest and experience enjoying being together with each other, enjoying being together with the Lord. You know, we're not doing a bunch of projects around the house. We're just trying to enjoy being together with each other. And, you know, this Friday morning, Sabbath day, get up, you know, I was on the couch, and first Valerie comes over and kind of snuggles with me, and then Ruby comes over, and then Rose gets up, and Rose kind of tries to, you know, climb on top. And so it was this awesome moment where it was me with my, four girl, my three girls, fourth girl wasn't on top of me, she was... <laughs> um, with the three girls just all snuggled up together, and we just kind of we just kind of laid there, and we just you know, and it was it was great. You know, I didn't while we were just laying, kind of snuggling together like that. I didn't once think, "Gosh, when is Rose gonna get potty trained?" I didn't once think, "Man, I wish Valerie would learn to do long division." I didn't once think that, why? Because I just enjoy being with them. And they were enjoying, I think they were enjoying, I hope they were enjoying, we were enjoying being together as a family. And what we're trying to wrap our minds around this Christmas is the idea that that's the way God feels about you. That he wants to be with you, he wants to snuggle up with you, he wants to go on a walk with you, he wants to know how you're doing. God is not an absentee father, he loves you and he wants to not just save you, but he wants to be with you, he wants to live with you. And what we saw last week, and we have the picture of the Garden of Eden up, there it is. So again, in our, our very artistically rendered uh, piece of, of fine, really it's a masterpiece is what it is. <laughs> what we see is that the story of the Bible starts with humanity getting to experience that type of a relationship with God. That in, in the garden, in the garden, Adam and Eve, they're, they're with God, they're together with him, they're naked and unashamed, not just before each other, but also before God. And it's awesome. It's a million times more awesome than, you know, snuggling with me. <laughs> That's an understatement, right? But Psalm 1611 says, talking about God's presence, just how good it is to be together with God, not because we're doing something for him, not because of anything 
other than the fact that it's just good to be with him. Psalm 1611 says, God, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. It's good just to be with him. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forever. In your presence, there's fullness of joy, and in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. So it was awesome. But what we saw last week in the story of the Garden of Eden, so they're, they're in this beautiful place full of jewels and you know, gold and rubies and sapphires and, uh, and, and rivers and just glittering, and then you have this, the tree of life, which is this fountain, this source, this never-ending source of life and vitality and energy. And then after they sin, God, he cuts them off from the tree of life. And then it says that he drives them out of the garden. And I remember I told you to, to remember that he drives them out of the east gate of the garden. Right? I know it seems, seems like a small detail. We're going to talk about that this week. He drives them out of the, from the east side of the garden. And to make sure that they never come back in, what does he do? He takes two cherubim, or he takes cherubim, doesn't say how many cherubim, which are these, you know, not these cute little naked chubby babies, but, but are these, these, these winged angelic warriors. And just to make sure there's no confusion, they're holding flaming swords, <laughs> all right? So nobody can get back in. So they were driven out of the Garden of Eden, cut off from the tree of life, cut off from God's presence, with the, with the cherubim guarding, making sure that nobody can return back into the presence of God. And what we said last week is that we have the Garden of Eden in our DNA. Okay, we were made to be not just saved by God, we were made to be adopted by God. We were made to be with God. And we go through this life, and we have lots of ups, and we have lots of downs. But if we're being honest, even in the best times, which Christmas is, a, is an awesome time, we have all of the, the best things in life are together, right? We have our favorite people, our favorite food, you know, awesome decorations, we've got good music. The best things in life are together. But if we're being honest, there's often this sense of disappointment, isn't there? And what we said we wanted to do is this Christmas season, rather than turning on each other and saying, oh, you know, if you just were a better cook or if, oh, if, you, if you're, you know, if, you're, if, if your dad or your mom or whoever, you know, didn't talk about politics or if only the kids would this or if only we got better presents, what we said we wanted to do this Christmas is to recognize what that is, that deep in our heart, again, we said we have the Garden of Eden in our DNA, deep inside of our heart, we have this longing that can only be satisfied by being in the presence of God, just like Adam and Eve were in the garden. And what we see is you look at, you know, after Genesis 3, when they get kicked out of the garden, what you see is, over the rest of the book of, of Genesis, God comes to visit his people, but he doesn't live with them. He pays them a visit occasionally, but he never moves in with them. We just sent out these postcards to, to the, the neighbors and that, that are surrounding kind of this, this area, and, uh, and we put kind of the, the graphic the, that we've been using for this Christmas series, and we put the, the message translation of, of the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us, which is the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. 
Well, throughout the book of Genesis, God pays a visit to his people once in a while, but it's just a visit. He doesn't move in. Every once in a while you have, you have Noah has a conversation with God. You know, go build the ark and, you know, animals and, and all this type of stuff. Okay, you know, rainbow, I'm not going to do that again. And then, you know, it has a few interactions with God. And, and with Abraham, you know, coming to Abraham and making promises to Abraham and, and saying, hey, I'm going to give you a son. You still haven't given me a son. Okay, I'm going to promise I'm going to give you a son. And what we see is that if you look at, the, at Abraham's life, I mean, he, li- he lived to be very, very old there were only a handful of times where he had this experience where he, where God came to visit him, right? So God visited his people, but he didn't move in. He didn't come to live with them. But what we see in Exodus chapter 25, which I invite you to turn there right now, Exodus 25, What happens in Exodus chapter 25 is so significant. Oh, first let me say this. What's really significant, and I'm not sure if you notice this or not, in Exodus chapter three, when God comes, when the Lord comes to Moses, and he, he tells him to go and bring a message to Pharaoh, right? What is that message? He says, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go so that what? so that they can worship me, or so that they can serve me. In other words, God isn't just doing a random act of kindness here. He's not just saying, Pharaoh, stop picking on those nice people, let them go. He comes to Pharaoh and he says, Israel is my son. Let my son go so that he can worship me in the wilderness. Okay, it's not, you know, let him go and then, hey, that was nice. Again, we said this before, God is less like Batman, you know, swoop in, save the day, swoop out, and more like Liam Neeson in the movie Taken. Remember that? Remember we said that? That he saves you because he loves you because you're his child and he wants you to be with him. Okay, that's who God is. And what we see in Exodus chapter 25, I'm gonna start reading in verse one, gonna read verses one through nine. Okay, so this is, what, this is what the Lord says to Moses. So they've had the law, they've read the law, they've agreed to the law. And this is what God says in Exodus 25, verse one. The Lord says to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me, that they may take from me a contribution. So God's, God's raising, raising some money. Okay, what's it gonna be for? From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskin, goat skin, acacia wood, oil for lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for fragrant incense, onks stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Basically what he's saying is take all of your best stuff, your jewels, your precious things, and, and, and that's, what, that's, what he's, that's what he's inviting them to contribute to him. But what's he gonna do with it? Look at what it says in verse eight. Verse eight it says, so take all this awesome stuff and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. 
let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And again, we take this for granted. But remember, for generations and generations and generations and generations, God's paid a few people a few visits, but he hasn't moved in. God's saying, hey, build me a house. I'm moving in. And in verse eight, it says, let me make you, tell them to make for me a sanctuary. So what is a sanctuary? So you think of a sanctuary, you think of like a bird sanctuary. Is that what comes to mind? Like a bird sanctuary or like an animal sanctuary. And basically a sanctuary is this designated area that is set aside or that's designated for a particular for a particular use. And it's often, you know, the way we use the term, it's often like an animal um, or it can be for, for a person too. But the difference is, when we think of a bird sanctuary is to protect who? Protect the birds, right? You know, people are shooting the birds or, or whatever, birds are getting hit by cars. So we have this bird sanctuary, the birds are here, the birds are safe. That's not what's going on in Exodus chapter 25. Remember in Exodus 19, when God comes down to dwell on Mount Sinai? So they're at the bottom of the, of, they're, in, they're in the desert at the foot of the mountain. God comes down to the top of the mountain and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's, there's flames and, there's, and, and, and the earth shakes and the people are, are terrified. And, and they said, let him, Moses, let him just talk to you. Don't let him talk to us. If he keeps talking to us, we're gonna die. And then God says to the people, he, said, he tells Moses to tell the people, don't let anybody come and touch this mountain because if they do, he says, if they do, then I'm going to break out against them and they will die. That's pretty intense. So what the picture we're getting is God is this, God is just, this explosive, unbelievably powerful being. And if kind of puny, little, flimsy, sinful, unholy people, you know, walk into that fire, they get consumed just like that. And so this is a sanctuary, but it's not a sanctuary to protect God from us. It's a sanctuary to protect the people from God. Because what God is doing, he says he's coming to dwell with them. What he's doing is, if you, if you were to look at a map of, of, the, of the camp of the people of Israel, remember there's about two million people at this point. God sets up his camp, he sets up his tent, which is the tabernacle just means tent, right in the middle of the Israelite camp. Now how is that gonna work? If you were an Israelite, you remember what it, looked like to, what it, what it was like to hear God's voice. Now he's gonna be right next to you? That would be terrifying. But God is saying he's telling them to construct him a tabernacle, construct for him a tent, and it's specifically designed to somehow allow God to dwell in the midst of the Israelites' camp without destroying them, okay? And then what he says in verse nine, he says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, which again is is a tent, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. So what's the deal here? Is God just really being anal? Is he just saying like, you know, like, I have to have the drapes like this. I can't believe you picked out that. Is that what God's doing? That's not what God's doing. The reason that God is so particular about how they design it, what they put in it, 
what materials they use for it is because the tabernacle is meant to send a very, very specific message to the people, and that message is God is coming back, and he is restoring what you lost when you got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. God is coming back, and he is restoring what you lost when you sinned and you got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And so if you look at the tabernacle, and do we have that picture up on the screen? Let's put that up there. There you go. So again, you know, our, our, first, our first piece sold for $3 million, so we went back and we commissioned another, uh, the same artist, I'm just kidding, um, this time used a, a thicker marker. <laughs> so I hope to get more money for this one. Um, but basically, if you look at the tabernacle, okay, so this is, this is the tabernacle, and there are lots of different aspects of the tabernacle's design that are meant to remind the people of the Garden of Eden. Okay, so first of all, let me give you a few of these. So number one, remember last week I told you to take, to, to notice and to remember what direction Adam and Eve were going when God drove them out of the garden. Which direction was it? It was east, right? Okay, so can you see, you see the gate of the tabernacle, of the courtyard? You see which direction it's on? What side of the tabernacle courtyard is it on? It's on the east, isn't it? Well, what do you think that means? Well, I grew up in the suburbs, so I am often not aware of north, south, east, and west. Can anybody else relate to that? <laughs> My dad grew up on a farm in North Dakota, so he always knows, oh, you know, like, turn, turn to the west. Like, I don't have a compass. You know, just tell me left or right, or just, just put it in Google Maps. Let me, you know, find it. But, but for people that grew up and that live, which really, I mean, everybody until a couple hundred years ago, you know, they, they were very familiar. You always know where the sun is, right? You always know which direction east is, Okay. You always, you always know these directions are. And so for us, it might seem a little bit nitpicky, but trust me, it was not lost on the people at that time that as you enter the courtyard, as you enter the courtyard of God's house, what direction are you moving? You're moving west. So they, they went east as they were being driven out of God's presence, and now they're coming back to the west back towards God's presence. Isn't that cool? Second of all, this is a place of abundance. If you read the description in Genesis chapter two of the Garden of Eden, and this is some of the crazy stuff. This was not in the, the flannel graph or, or whatever it was. You always saw the Garden of Eden, you have kind of two naked people and they have like strategically placed vines or something, you know. But, but one thing that I never saw in those picture books when I was growing up is if you look in Genesis chapter two, the Garden of Eden is full of these precious jewels. It is a place of rich abundance. You get the idea that there's just like rubies and sapphires and gold and di- just kind of laying out there. Just like you walk by, you know, the side of the road in, in Cary, North Carolina, you see like a pile of dirt. Oh, there's a pile of rubies. That <laughs> is a place of abundance. And remember, like I said, the tabernacle is a place of abundance. God is taking their most precious jewels, their most precious, finest fabrics to make this house for him. So it's a place of abundance. Number three, the furniture. The furniture in the tabernacle. And it gets pretty tedious if you read through, some of this is really kind of summarizing 
uh, Genesis or Exodus chapter 25 through 40. So it gets kind of tedious if you read through it verse by verse. I'm just kind of describing it. But the furniture within the tabernacle, let's do this. Imagine that you were, let's just try to imagine walking into the tabernacle courtyard. Okay, so imagine you're coming in, you're coming in towards the west, and you walk past the, the altar, you walk past the, the washing basin, which we're gonna talk about those next week, what those are for. And then you get to the you get to the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle, it's this tent. It's it's 15 feet high, 15 feet wide, and about 45 feet long. Okay, 15 feet. 15 feet, and then 45 feet long. So it's kind of like walking into like a single wide trailer, but a lot, a lot, you know, obviously a lot classier. You know, no offense to single wide trailers. But you're walking into this, and it's pretty long. And the first room you come to, the first room you come to is called the holy place. It's called the holy place. Now, you pull, you pull apart, you pull back the veil, and you step in. And probably the first thing you're going to notice when you enter the tabernacle is the smell. The first thing you're going to notice is the smell. Because directly in front of you, right before the veil that leads to the most holy place, there's this altar that's continually burning incense. And so the, the, the inside of the holy place is filled with this aroma which is supposed to show you that God's presence fills this place just like this incense is filling this place, All right? And as you're walking in, you're gonna notice on your left, you're gonna notice a lampstand. Now, looking at the picture in the diagram, what does the lampstand kind of remind you of? What does it look like a little bit? Well, I know it's a menorah. I mean, what does the menorah look like? <laughs> A tree, thank you. <laughs> it's a tree, and the menorah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a menorah, that's right, but the menorah looks like a tree. <laughs> and uh, it, it's what it is, it looks like this lampstand, it looks like a tree with seven branches. And at the, at the top of each branch, there, there's, there's these, these, these flames. So it's this glowing tree made out of gold that's shining on you as you come in, what was it that God was cutting his people off from when he drove them out of the Garden of Eden? The tree of life. And again, it's not lost on these people. You step into God's presence, you're moving west, step into God's presence. The first thing you notice is this beautiful, glittering, glowing, dazzling, golden tree that's right there. Now you look to your right and you're gonna see a table. And on the table, in the, uh, in the drawing there, there's two kind of dots there, and those represent two piles of bread. And what they're on this table, there's two, there, there's 12 loaves of bread and two piles. Now, don't think like, you know, big, chunky kind of Harris Teeter type of bread. Think if you had really good Indian food and had the naan or the naan or the, you know what I'm talking about? Um, that's kind of what this bread is like. These kind of circular, flatter, sort of disc-shaped bread, and they're stacked in two piles of six on the, on the table, within the tabernacle, and so the whole idea, so there's 12 of them, which it, it represents God's people, the, the 12 tribes of, of Israel. So the whole idea is you have this lamp that represents the tree of life that's continually shining on God's people. They're able to continually bask in the presence of God, which they lost back in Genesis 3, okay? Well, you keep on going, 
and what you're going to find, find in front of you is this really thick veil. Remember, this veil is 15 feet high and it's 15 feet wide, so it's really big. It's very thick. And what does it have embroidered on it? It has two cherubim. Now, what was it that God posted at the entrance of the Garden of Eden when he drove Adam and Eve out? Cherubim, right? And so imagine you're standing, you're standing right in front of this veil. You know that on the other side of this veil, you know, that being that came down on the top of the mountain that scared the you-know-what out of you, he's on the other side of this veil. And you're looking at two cherubim, these winged angelic warriors. But this time, if you were gonna go in, and we'll talk next week about how you would go in and not die, this time, rather than keeping you out of God's presence with a flaming sword, the cherubim part and they're acting as ushers, ushering you into the presence of God. And you walk in to the most holy place, and there's only one thing in the, in the most holy place, and that is a, it's the Ark of the Covenant, which is where they put the, the Ten Commandments. It's this kind of, this box. On top of that box, there is a, there's a thick covering of solid gold called the atonement cover, okay? And that is the place where, God, where God's presence would descend and meet with his people and talk to the priest or talk to the people or talk to the person that was in there on the atonement cover in the most holy place in the tabernacle. Isn't that cool? And the tabernacle, there's two words in Hebrew that are used to describe the tabernacle. The one is, is, is a tent, and the second one is a place of meeting. It's a tent of meeting. And this isn't a tent where you go to like have a staff meeting. This is a tent where you go to meet with God. And the most important thing, the biggest way that the tabernacle reflects the Garden of Eden is you can be together with God. Just like we talked about last week, how they're having face-to-face -face conversations with God. Later on in Exodus, God says, that he talks to Moses face to face just like a man talks to his friend. God is restoring, it's been countless generations, but God is restoring what they've lost when they sinned and they got kicked out of the garden. Well, what does this mean for us? What, is, what do we learn about God from this? You can go to the next slide there, are we there? What I think, what I want you to hear as you think about God and the tabernacle and this awesome story of God after so many years making a way to once again not just visit his people, not just save his people, but to move in with them. I want you to remember these two things. The Lord does not give up. The capital L-O-R-D, Lord. We'll get that next time. The capital L-O-R-D, Lord, does not give up. It would have been so easy for God to just say, these people are so rebellious. These people are so sinful. Screw it, I'm just gonna, I don't, I don't need these people. You know, I, I'm just gonna wipe everybody out with the flood. We don't need, I mean, Noah, yeah, he's better than most of them, but he's not, you know, I know what he's gonna do after I save him. 
But he doesn't do that. He doesn't give up. There's this word when God, introdu- when God introduces himself to Moses, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks. In Exodus chapter 34, he says, he says Moses, I'm gonna tell you my name. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord is slow to anger and merciful and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this word steadfast love, this is the Hebrew word, it's the Hebrew word hesed, is how you say that word, probably chesed, chesed. And this is a word that's notoriously hard to translate. Okay, it can mean love, it can mean loyalty, it can mean faithfulness, it can mean a lot of different things. My favorite translation is from, how many of you have read the Jesus Storybook Bible before? Have you read this Bible before? You know what I'm about to say? Over and over and over again, throughout the, and, and I, I mean, it's, they're trying to translate this word, and it's my favorite translation. Over and over again, they use this phrase, God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Did I miss one? Un- Unbreak, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's the type of love that God loves us with. It's a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. But God doesn't not only not give up, he also doesn't settle. It would have been very easy for God just to say, these people are such a headache. These people are such a headache. You know, I'm, I'm not gonna destroy them. I'm gonna give them everything that they need. But I'm not gonna live with them. You have a friend like that where you're like, I want to really be good to this person. I mean, I'll support him financially. Shoot, I'll even buy him a house. But move in with him? <laughs> I don't think so. God doesn't settle. He does, he's not going to settle from, for anything less than snuggling with his children on the couch on a Friday morning. That's what he wants. And so my encouragement to you this Christmas season is don't you settle either. I think for a lot of us, a lot of us, we've kind of become, I mean, content's probably the wrong word, but we've kind of settled for this relationship with God where we have our ticket to heaven. We, we kind of view God like, a, like, you know what a presidential pardon is? You know what that is? We kind of view God like somebody, who, like a president who's given us a presidential pardon. You, know, you did something really bad, did something really bad, and then, oh my goodness, the president, he, you know, he stamps, and, and now, I'm, now I'm forgiven. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And you're so thankful, and you just have this sense of lightness, and you're so free, but you're never going to see him. And if you do, it's just kind of like, hey, yeah, thanks for that. Oh, yeah, yeah, bye-bye-bye. I've got to go do a thing. But that's not who God is. Don't settle for that type of relationship with God. God wants to snuggle with you on the couch. God wants to go on a walk and have a conversation with you. I think about the prodigal son where when he comes home, what does he say to his father? He says, he, you know, he's sinned and he's, he's betrayed his father and he comes back and he says, oh, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Let me instead be a servant. Oh yeah, it's, you know, I'll, I'm having enough food to eat and um, but just let me be a servant in your house. Let me just live in your house. I know I've given up my right to be your son, but just let me, be, let me live in your house and, and just kind of do stuff for you. That's better than eating the pig slop. But what does the father say? He says, no, bring the, 
bring the best clothes, bring the best, this is my son. And he was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. And I think for a lot of us, we're not willing to accept the clothes. We're not willing to accept the feast. We're not willing to accept the ring. We still wanna be the servant. And we think that's noble, but it's really not noble. What it is is, is, is that it's ignorant. It's ignorant of the fact that God will never stop. He'll never stop working to have that intimate relationship with us that we had with him back in Genesis chapter three, before Genesis chapter three. And so my encouragement to you is don't settle for just being God's servant. We are God's servants, but we're also his children. And, and this Christmas, if you're not experiencing what I was talking about in Psalm 16, in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand there's pleasures forever. That's there for you. That's who God is. It's not that he's settling, oh, you know, so-and-so, they've made so many mistakes. I mean, I, like, it, shoot, if you're only gonna read your Bible once a week, I mean, I can't give you the fullness of joy. I mean, I can give you like a little bit of joy. I'll keep you from getting in a car wreck, but I'm not gonna give you the fullness of joy. No, God, is, God, God wants to give you that. And you draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for coming to live with us. Thank you for rescuing us. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. God, I know that this week there have been lots of times where I haven't experienced the fullness of joy that's in your presence. I pray that we would do that this week. We just reject the lie that we've screwed up so badly that all we can do is just work for you. Thank you, you want us to be your sons and daughters. And I pray that you would help us to experience the joy of snuggling with you on the couch, being together with you. And I pray we'd be able to invite many other people into that as well. In Jesus' name, amen.